Hi, guys. Welcome to the show. Hi, Rick. Hi, Chris. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. So I somehow get a little joy out of not telling you the topic of conversation sometimes. I, I don't know what that power or control or just I just have the excitement inside myself that I enjoy. So I'm glad I, you can have some perverse pleasure. So today is a very important topic that somehow just came to me that we have a platform to share this information with. And uh, we're going to have two guests, uh, one today, one tomorrow. And the only goal with the guests and the conversation, the only goal is to help anybody that might listen to this um, by listening to perhaps something that they haven't heard before, and maybe this can help them. So our show being in the vein of mysteries, truths, you know, whether that's ancient mariners, crop circles, spirits, you know, UFOs uh, or Phoenicians, you know, perhaps somebody can be helped by this segment. And I think a lot of people can. So Rick, so you had COVID on our last few episodes and you battled through it. I mean, on, literally on air, you battled through it. Incredible. So um, we, we will always have that, uh, that you didn't know you had COVID, but you, you were a great on-air personality. So uh, what did you do to get better and how did you get through it? Well, uh, my symptoms were pretty much normal for COVID. Um, productive cough, very productive cough, coughing up more stuff than I want to talk about, really. Um, extreme back pain, in my case. Some people have joint pain or other afflictions. Um, also, I slept a lot, and that may have helped me heal. But once I was diagnosed, I informed my primary care provider, and he prescribed uh, a gamma globulin infusion and ivermectin. And I am, I'll take my last dose of ivermectin here in just an hour or so. Um, I continued to eat, although my appetite was pretty subdued. That's a, a nice way of saying that I didn't really care whether I ate or not. Um, I did drink a lot. I kept the fluids flowing. Um, other than that, it's just, you know, get over it. So does that answer your question? Yeah. So great. And, uh, that's great. So our guest, um, I just want our guest to share as much as she possibly can. And Rick, if you have any questions, jump in, but the goal here is to just help perhaps a heck of a lot of people could listen to this. So Hello, speaker. Welcome. We will address you as uh, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Gubernikov. Um, <laughs> so what would you like to say about, um, you're a scientist, you're a doctor. Um, what would you like to say about how can you help people that are listening to this that are both vaccinated, unvaccinated? Just start talking. Well, I I think that one of the biggest points that he brought up was the gamma globulin, which I think is being underutilized from the people that I follow and that I discuss this with. It's really one of the best ways to get over 
COVID, the disease, as well as kind of protecting yourself from, from getting it again. Um, I believe it's after two weeks of having the infusion. They say you're, I think it's 98% uh, protected. So a lot more protected even than the vaccine. Um, but whether you're vaccinated or not, it's definitely something that you should get or you should ask your doctor for. I know that they have it at major hospitals and some of the larger urgent care centers, but you do need to request it. And it's a one hour infusion and then one hour to watch you and just make sure you don't have any reactions. But I believe the US government bought like 100 million doses or infusions worth. And it's just basically been sitting in a lot of hospitals and urgent care not being used because you actually have to ask for it. And I've also heard that once you get admitted to the hospital, they won't give it to you. So it's, it's really important that you do not get hospitalized and instead that you ask for the gamma globulin right away because it is an outpatient treatment. And most people turn around within 72 hours. Okay, um, talk to us about ivermectin and how the frontline doctors of the world recommend taking that. Well, the, the ivermectin, there's, there's ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, which obviously a lot of people have heard about that. Um, and they're used for prevention and treatment. And there's a different dosage depending on what you're doing with it and where you are kind of in the course of the disease. And they do have it listed on the frontline doctors. It's FLCCC uh, website. And they have all the different protocols updated regularly um, when something changes. For example, the Delta variant they're finding is more, it's, it's, it's actually responding better to hydroxychloroquine than the ivermectin, although ivermectin is still a fabulous medication to take for it because it's not only antiviral, um, it also has anti-inflammatory qualities, which is a big part of the disease. It's a inflammothrombotic disease when you get COVID. And that's when people actually get really sick is not from having SARS-CoV-2, but it's from the inflammothrombotic disease process. And that's when you have clots and you have so much inflammation. Um, something else I learned, you know, I, I do listen to a lot of doctors that are very well educated and have done numerous studies with real people treating them for COVID. And they've said that also, if you ever end up on a respirator, that there is something you need to make sure that you're only getting half dose of the tidal volume. And that's the amount of air or oxygen they actually give you when you're on a respirator. And they really, because the lungs are so fragile at that point, they've been giving the normal 10 mils or 10 milligrams, 10 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram. And it really needs to be reduced to five milliliters per kilogram of body weight for the tidal volume. And that's just something that's really important. And they're trying to disseminate the information into hospitals, but it seems like the hospitals still don't have that information because it's not being freely shared with the nurses and the doctors. Uh, um, and I'm Andre, are you driving? No, that they, they have are discussing this with doctors. I am. <laughs> huh. All right, maybe I, I can maybe I can hear you better now. You just went through a little patch there. So, can you say that last part just one more time? About the title volume. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that it's important for people to be aware of, like you said on this call, just the main thing is just to any information, any and all information that, you know, we all research and spend time discovering. I think it's really important that we just talk about it because you never know who is going to hear it and then share it with the right doctor and how many lives could be saved by that one fact. 
Um, and the title volume is super important. And, you know, I heard it as fascinating to me when I heard it being talked about the title volume and the importance of going to a half dose when you have a really severe inflammathrombotic disease that's involving the lungs. If you go ahead and blast the lungs with full title volume, that would be in a normal, healthy patient that was needing to go under, you know, under anesthesia and have a respirator to breathe for them while they're under anesthesia, because that's what they do with humans in anesthesia, is they basically take away the, the ability of the human to breathe. So they have to breathe for you with a respirator. Well, the normal dose is 10 mils, 10 milliliters per kilogram. And what they need to do is reduce it to five milliliters per kilogram of total tidal volume. So they calculate that, they set the machine, and that you know gives your lungs the oxygen while you're you're on the respirator. And if you do it too too much, the normal dose, it's actually a lot of people, it will damage the lungs further. And that's just not, you know, the, the people who talk about anesthesia and respirators, all those big groups, they've been discussing this, but it does not seem like it's being followed in most hospitals. I have a question. Is it actually, uh, when you say it's damaging the lungs, is it oxidizing the tissue? It's just kind of like, if you think about the lungs normally looking maybe like a sponge, you know, a natural sponge from the sea. And then if you were to let it sit out in the sun until it got all dried out and, and like where if you touched it, it would crumble. That's kind of how the lungs are when they when you have COVID, if you're in a really severe inflammatory state. And then if you imagine, you know, kind of stepping on it, pieces of lung are going to go all over the place. So instead you're inflating this balloon that's all dried and, and falling apart and bleeding and you're going to cause more damage. The, those, so, those fragile cells are already you know, compromised. So not to sound too uh, uncaring, but you really do cough up a lung. Literally. Yeah. Yes. And, I, and the other part is, you know, it's very scary is the thrombosis. And so you're throwing clots all over your body, not just in your lungs, but if a big clot from lowering your leg goes up and blocks a vessel in your lung, then you can't breathe even more. And so another really important part are anticoagulants. Um, and they are using several different ones, but one that was recommended by Dr. Fleming was he thought that every, you know, this was old, this is old school medicine. They used to do this all the time when people would be hospitalized is they would recommend heparin injected, you know, sub Q twice a day. Anybody who was laying on their back in a bed was very prone to developing clots. And this is, you know, has nothing to do with SARS-CoV-2, this was just anyone who was being hospitalized back in the day. You know, they would give them heparin or blood thinner so that they wouldn't throw clots and have embolism and have a stroke. And so this is a huge part of the treatment is making sure that, I mean, they're even talking about dosing aspirin for children to keep them from having, you know, this inflammathrombotic disease, but the thrombosis part of it, it can be quite dangerous. Well, good, good job with that. Rick, do you have another question or do you want me to jump in? I'm, I'm still processing. Go right ahead. And so uh, can you name some of the names of the people that you follow? Like, uh, uh, you know, just name us a few, a few people out there that are doing great work and the universities that are doing great work. Well, I'm not, you know, I, I know that there's several different groups and they do have, you know, shows at different times. And of course, some of them are, have been labeled, you know, the, the 12 misinformation <laughs> dozen, the misinformation dozen, but I think they're just doing incredible research. 
Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've followed Dr. Tenpenny for, for decades, and I think she's an amazing doctor and scientist and researcher. And she has just scoured through, I think she said like 40,000 hours, probably now at this point, about 50,000 hours of, you know, CDC documents, research documents, um, case studies, and, and just from the CDC library, which everybody has access to, she basically just went into it and did a lot of research, never mind the fact that she was an ER doc for a long, long time. Um, and that's Dr. Tenpenny, um, T-E-N-P-E-N-N-Y. And she has a wonderful, um, it's called Critical Thinking with Dr. T and Dr. P. And then she, I think once a month has five docs on with her and they discuss, it has Dr. Mede um, and a couple others that are, they have this deep dive discussion about everything that's going on. Um, they talk about detoxifying things that you can do. Dr. Bidet has this incredible, um, it sounds kind of bizarre, but it's a bleach detox and it's literally one cup of Clorox bleach. It has to be the actual Clorox bleach, not some other, because it has to be the exact type of chlorine that's in it. And it's Clorox bleach, one cup in a bath of water. And you literally soak in it for 20 minutes. And it's really great at detoxifying, especially for small, very small, like microscopic parasites. And it's actually, you know, it's very helpful. And the other thing is for heavy metal detox is actually taking oil of cilantro. And she recommends two drops twice a day, like under your tongue. And it's oil of cilantro. Some people think it's uh, oil of oregano, which is wonderful for the immune system, but it's oil of cilantro actually. And uh, I've done it. I think it's incredible. And it's especially for the heavy metal detox. And we don't know what people are transmitting when they have this injection. Um, I don't qualify it as a vaccine because it doesn't do what vaccines are supposed to do, which is protect you from getting the disease or protect you from spreading the disease. It may help some people not have as bad as symptoms, but that's, you know, kind of being pushed to the side now, even with the Delta variant, it doesn't seem like people are doing well. It seems like they're possibly doing worse um, from, from what we're seeing and the actual numbers coming out of the hospitals. So well, I, have, know, I, think I have an anecdotal about do. that. Go ahead. Yes. When I went for my infusion, the infusion nurse, uh, first of all, she said my vitals were stronger than hers were. Uh, but secondly, she was surprised that I had not had the vaccination. I said, why is that? She said, well, for the last three weeks, everybody who's come in for an infusion has been vaccinated. And I'm thinking, well, isn't that kind of the reverse of the purpose of a vaccination? Well, that is in line with what I'm hearing as well. Wow. I mean, if you're looking at the studies in Israel um, and you're looking at the numbers coming out of Israel, I've seen, you know, news interviews with one of the top, top doctors in one of the top hospitals in Israel. And they're actually, he was saying what last, at last report, it was 85 to 90% of his severely ill hospitalized patients were vaccinated. Now, I know most of Israel has been vaccinated because it was forced on them, um, yeah. yet still, that's that's pretty devastating numbers for you know a country, especially as small as Israel. Yes. So there's other things that you can do, you know, and again, it's really wonderful to go to the frontline doctors, the FLCCC website. Um, and I do check it regularly and I send the protocols to you know friends and family regularly because it does change. Um, for instance, at one point they did, they took the hydroxychloroquine out as a preventative and they instead added quercetin 
And the idea of how they both work is that they're zinc ionophores, meaning they help the cell to uptake the zinc. And the zinc is really good at blocking the virus uh, from attacking you. And it's um, really important that everybody's taking their zinc every day and taking the zinc with the quercetin. And they give you a range depending on where you are in the process. If you have the actual disease, if you have um, some symptoms, but you're not sure just what you do every day, what you do if you've kind of done the first line of protocol and you're not getting well or you're starting to have difficulty breathing. Um, budesonide is a very good inhaled steroid that you can use and you can use it either with a little pump, you know, the inhaled inhaler, or you can actually use it with a nebulizer. Um, that is something that they recommend everybody goes out and buys is a nebulizer. Like I think everybody should have one on hand because you don't want to be trying to get it when you start to have a breathing issue. And it, it really makes no sense. Like they are reporting that people who go into the hospital are not really receiving these breathing treatments right away, um, which is just a standard. Anytime you have a respiratory illness, that's the first thing they do. They bring in a respiratory therapist. They either give you inhaled steroids um, or albuterol, something to open up your lungs, bronchodilators, things to help you breathe. And it doesn't seem like that's the first thing that people are getting. And that's even something you can do at home. I mean, I used to do it with my own children because one of them had a serious issue with his lungs as a young child and would get croup really bad and not be able to breathe. And so the doctor told me, have, you know, make sure you have a nebulizer on hand, have budesonide and albuterol, start with albuterol. If it's not working, add in the budesonide. And literally they're just breathing it through, you know, the little mask or through throw, you know, flow by, which is when you put the tube next to the mouth, you don't have to put the mask on. Um, but there were studies, 100% of patients that were given budesonide inhaling from one doctor's office in Texas. 100% of his patients went home. None of them were hospitalized. And literally, it was like within an hour, they were like, I can breathe. And they were coming, you know, they literally were panicking. They couldn't breathe. So, I mean, it, there's several treatments for this disease and a lot of treatments that are working. And yes, there are still, you know, unfortunately, people are dying from it, um, yet they're not being treated with the proven treatments right away. And the, the really important thing with all coronaviruses, and this has been you know, historically a truth, is that early treatment is the key. You don't wait until you can't breathe. You need to start treating right away. And, and doctors know that. And I, that's why I do not understand why it's not being shared. And you know, it should be a protocol that is doctors, if you're gonna, the government's going to force something, they should be forcing the proper treatment to be done not waiting until people get onto a ventilator and most won't get off a ventilator. And, and so, so there is, tell us about, is it Fleming's treatment that the 99.83% uh, effective, you know, survival ability rates that that gentleman is working on and how that. Yeah, so the yeah. Fleming method. Um, and it is actually, it's, it's Fleming, the Fleming, FlemingMethod.com is Dr. Fleming, and he's a cardiologist and scientist, and I believe for over 50 years, and he is one of the leading cardiologists. He created or came up with, discovered um, the inflammothrombotic mechanism of, you know, heart disease and cardiology, and he applied it to SARS-CoV-2 SARS and COVID-19. And he applied it to testing the patients and measuring the inflammation. And it's a very sensitive way of measuring inflammation. 
And he used that with some other blood tests to check and measure um, interleukin-6 and a couple other things to actually track these patients. So it's, it, they're real scientific studies that were done in, I believe, seven countries and possibly, you know, he had eight, I think it was 1,800 individuals that were in his study. And basically what they did was they randomly assigned patients medications and then they combined them. They stacked them depending on what the, how the patient was responding within 72 hours to each medication change. And so they had you know, eight different medications with all these different com combinations and they were able to check the numbers and see what would, res what would patients respond to in 72 hours. If they weren't responding, they'd modify the treatment plan. And after doing so with the 1800 patients, you know, they did lose three patients that died, but the rest, you know, survived. And there, these are very severe cases with comorbidities that were coming in, you know, very ill uh, with diabetes, with cancer, you know, heart disease, diseases already. Um, and that's a really good survivability, especially when that's not what the numbers were being told. And on his website, you can actually access, he has incredible, you know, some of them are long, but um, lectures that he talks about it and he updates them regularly and he does have his protocols there. And so you can, you can download them, you can share them with people. Um, and, and it shows what worked and when something's not working, it, it's a step-by-step, -step, the next thing, next medication that you give. Um, and so I really enjoy Dr. Fleming. Um, and then there's Dr. Peter McCullough, who is, you know, in the news quite often. And he is another cardiologist who he had, you know, a lot, it's interesting because a lot of these different doctors, they don't even necessarily recommend the same protocol, um, but they're getting the same results. And maybe one doctor, like Dr. Fleming does not, he did not research ivermectin. He did not use ivermectin in his studies. Um, he used hydroxychloroquine and he used a lot of other medications. Um, Dr. McCullough does use ivermectin. Dr. Tenpenny recommends ivermectin. So it's, it's really interesting how there are so many medications that are working and in different countries and different scientists um, that are researching this. And, you know, if, if, if you have a treatment plan for a disease, you cannot continue to offer an emergency use authorization. You can't. So they, they would have to cancel the emergency use authorization if there was a treatment. And so for some reason, the treatment is not being acknowledged, it's not being disseminated. Um, and people are you know, dying in hospitals because they're not being treated properly. And I know, you know the Pfizer vaccine or injection did just get approval for 16 and up, um, full approval by the FDA. The others don't have that yet. Without, um, without full benefit of full testing, I might add. Yes, and there is no more, you know, there's no control group um, from the study because they went and vaccinated all the control group. So now you don't have the control group anymore to see, you know, in six months to a year, you know, what reactions might be happening because you can't compare it to anything other than, you know, the general population, which is the control group, those who aren't getting it. Um, but, you know, the, there is, there's a treatment plan and there's, they're out there and people need to be smart, I think, and, and get their hands on it, print it out. I don't think leaving it, you know, in the ethers is, is smart. I think we need to be printing it out so we can actually have it on hand and make sure that we're taking our vitamin C, our zinc, our quercetin, our vitamin D. You know, I believe vitamin D deficiency is the pandemic, not not COVID, not SARS-CoV-2. I concur. Um, 
and it's 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 everywhere you know it's in people it's in animals like we just as a society we are vitamin d deficient and it is so important that we all get our vitamin d levels up above what's you know the normal it really should be in the higher this is where i jump in with conspiracy theory because i did that for 25 years um the vitamin D deficiency is not being addressed, let alone, it's not even being discussed, let alone addressed. But having said that, some of the leading virologists have said that white people need to get more sunlight, whereas all of the um, uh, cancer doctors say, oh, no, stay out of the sun, wear your sun protection, don't don't expose yourself, you know, you'll have skin cancer. It's like, one or the other, which one's going to kill you faster or which one's going to kill you more slowly, more painfully. Uh, my contention is go get two, two minutes of sunlight every day because no amount of, uh, of vitamin D therapy is going to do you as much good as two minutes of sunlight every day. And that's what some of the virologists are now saying. It's it's the natural vitamin D production by the human body that fights the virus. What do you think of that? I think I would say even 15 minutes a day. You know, yeah. I think we really need the sunshine. I think the sun is is very healing. You know, for for numerous reasons. But absolutely, you know, being out in in nature, like your feet actually touching the ground as well. There's a lot that that can heal us if we're actually paying attention. And vitamin D right. is really important. And if you're not, I mean, people say, oh, I'm taking my thousand, you know, units, but it's like, no, you need more like 5,000 or some people even 25,000 for a little bit yeah. to get them up to normal. And you have to check, you have to check your levels. I say, everybody right. should go out and get their levels checked. You have to check them regularly if they're not optimal. Um, and optimal is, I think they're saying like 160, 170, like really high, not just the, you know, up close to 130. You really want it to be up, up there, you know, and it, it, it's so important for your immune system, not just talking about you know, SARS-CoV-2, but for your immune system, for your joints, like they're saying a lot of people are experiencing pain, um, neuralgia, um, you know, that would include chronic me. fatigue. And, you know, <laughs> if you, if you bring your vitamin D levels up, a lot of those, there's huge studies. A lot of those symptoms go away. Yes. It's vitamin D. Or, or at least they subside. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I, I've experienced a great deal of joint pain, particularly I used to work nights all the time. I didn't see much sunshine unless it was at the tail end of my work day. And my joint pain increased and increased and increased until I just changed jobs. And, uh, and I was able to absorb some more sunshine and I was uh, on the road to at least healing from that. So but if we're out here to help people with advice, that would be my one bit of advice. Go get plenty of sunshine. Just, just one last point on that, Rick. What was the story during World War II or whatever? The uh, injured patients or other, they take them outside on the beds and they heal better, right? If they get that sun. That, that was during the flu pandemic of 1919. If they would take their patients outside where they could absorb sunshine, they improved. But if they kept them in wards, they died. Wow. Okay. Um, uh, can you share with us about the, was it the Yale study where they did, you know, the science and kind of made their conclusions and then the 
they received some backlash from the community. And then the, was it the dean that basically came out and said, that was good science. He can continue doing what he was doing. What group was that? Was that Yale? Yes, it was Yale. So, I mean, there was, um, you know, it was just, I think Dr. Fleming was talking about it and he was commending um, the universities that were allowing good work to continue uh, because a lot of scientists, a lot of professors have been, you know, fired, have been, um, you know, had licenses taken away, doctors as well, um, for reporting about the treatments that are working. And there is a, I'm not sure of the exact name, but it was a doctor out of Yale, the medical school, who had reported in the journal his findings from a study. And he did receive some serious backlash and was getting attacked by not only his colleagues at, you know, in the medical school, but also in other universities, top universities. And the dean did reply to that attack and said that, you know, he was absolutely allowed to perform his science. The science was done correctly. And that anybody on the faculty at the medical school at Yale was allowed and would be allowed to continue reporting on their findings. And that that's what science is. You know, I don't know at what point we stopped doing science and, you know, people deciding that they were the science. It's like science is science. And you Fleming does address this too. He said, you know, I used to, to lecture on theories that I believed and, you know, their theories until, and they might be true until proven otherwise. But as a scientist, you have to be open to discovering new information and realizing that what, what we thought was, was maybe wrong. And once you discover new information, you need to share it with other scientists and scientists need, that's, that's kind of at the heart of being a scientist. You're there to discover it, find new, new methods and new ways. And, you have to take your ego out of it or, or the agenda out of it. I'm not quite sure. Like what's, I mean, really, of course, you know, all I know is I don't know like exactly what's going on. Um, but I just, you know, I keep gathering information. I keep listening to the people that I trust. Um, and they are people who are you know, loving, incredibly intelligent. And they really, I mean, they're spending so much time going out there, talking to people for free, holding these meetings every week. Um, interviews and, and just trying to help people, you know, it's, there's not, there's not a purpose other than that, you know, they're not, I mean, Mercola was attacked recently and had, you know, half of his data taken down off his site. Um, and then it, it's just, they're, they're finding the key people that, I mean, Dr. Tenpenny, all of her podcasts were taken down off of Podbean and that was supposed to be, you know, censorship free. So, I mean, it's, it's really sad and scary. I don't know what, why, particularly why it's happening. Um, but I think that we need to share and keep sharing the information because it, it's half of us, you know, it's, it's, it's at least 50% of people who are, you know, smart enough, half the country that are on top of this. It's not, it's not a small percentage of people that are following this, making, you know, that are aware um, and awake about what's going on. And it's, we just need to stand up and, and come together and, but keep sharing the information that we're getting so that it keeps us all safe. I why, think that's why we're here today. Well, good job. Why, let's continue. So um, why do you think some of these universities come out with studies that are all of a sudden attacked by, who are they attacked by? Is it the media? Is it, and then all of a sudden the deans kind of cave in and give in. Why do you think that happens? I mean, that's real conspiracy talking yeah i think this is probably um for 
another good thing for you to talk about, you know, is, I mean, who knows, right? Who knows exactly why they're doing it, but it's, it's university. It's the, it's other scientists from, from other, you know, universities, people from within there. I mean, I've heard horrible stories of like key top tenured faculty being attacked and basically had like all of their other faculty members of their own school go to the dean and tell that that person should be fired. They should be, their tenure should be removed. They shouldn't be teaching anymore. And these are, you know, professors who've been teaching at these schools for 20, 30 years, like wrote the book for their topic. And they're, they're trying, their, their own colleagues who they work with, you know, won't talk to them in, you know, in the break room, like literally going to the dean as a team and trying to get them fired. I mean, it's, and, it's and all they're all they're doing is trying to do science or try to help people or figure this thing out, right? Yeah, and discussing, you know, and discussing options. A lot of times, you know, it's it's interesting because they get labeled, you know, anti-vaxer or things like that, and it's like these people are vaccinated. <laughs> these people, their entire families are vaccinated. It's not about the vaccine. That's not what it's about. And they're being attacked for, they're just, they're just sharing the data. They're sharing the data and they're, they're sharing the information that they've found like a scientist should. And they're getting attacked for, for even being open to, you know, different ideas or different options. And that's, we have to be allowed to have, you know, we have to be allowed to have choice. I mean, this is a big issue, right? People, yeah. and, and even amongst the vaccinated, there's a, you know, Dr. Tempetti reports about it as well. Um, Del Bigtree talks about it on the highwire.com. And he does a show, they both do a show every Thursday. Um, but he talks about how in the studies that, that they've made, even the people that are vaccinated, at least half of them believe that people should have a choice. I mean, a lot of people who were vaccinated, you know, who've gotten COVID after wish are saying that they wish they hadn't gotten vaccinated, but they were told that this vaccine would protect them. And they were told this vaccine would protect their family. And that's, you know, of course, after the fact, when you've gotten it and you've given it to your family, then you, you question it. Um, but even if the people who have chosen, you know, everyone, I believe everyone has a choice and should have a choice. It's their body. They should have a choice. And a lot of people who are vaccinated and who are not vaccinated believe that. And so, you know, with these mandates coming down for something that's not even proving to be working, um, you know, I do believe we are high in number people who believe that we still have a right to have choice. Yeah, well, that's great. And the CDC director, right, the lady, so she came out and said, the vaccine, one of them had a 96%, you know, uh, success rate or, and then goes down to 62%. So now you need a booster, but we're still saying that you have to take that initial vaccine, which is 62% effective. Does that sound crazy to you guys? Yeah. And I heard it even dropped close lower to like in the low forties or something. I was hearing about that yesterday. So this, so that's this, not even, that's not even 50%. And I guess, you know, it also, there's, there's this issue that Fleming talks about on one of his two hour lectures, which, you know, I love, I could watch it over and over again. He's just fantastic. Um, but he talks about there's the relative risk assessment and then there's the actual, and it, it's when they looked at the vaccine studies, like your, your actual benefit was, was so low. It was even lower than it was lower than chance or something. I mean, it was, it was really ridiculous. Wow. Like there, it, it basically showed there was it, no benefit 
to the vaccine when you looked at the actual right numbers, when you calculate it like a statistic, like a scientist with a statistician. And, um, and that, that I don't want to forget that does remind me about the, Dr. Ioannidis, who is the, like the world's statistician who came out with his final studies after like looking at hundreds of thousands of patients data all over the world, that his actual numbers for, you know, the, the death rate of SARS-CoV-2 that it actually came down to somewhere between 0.05 and 0.4 and 0.05, excuse me, and 0.2, and it was plus or minus 0.05%. So that, that's a big deal because when you look at that number, it's, if you look at the number, the death rate for the flu in a good year, in a good year, it's 0.1. And in a, in a, in a, the worst year, it is 0.4, a bad flu. So even if you look at, you add the 0.05 of the spread in that to a, the 0.2, you get 0.25. You're still not into a bad flu year. So, I mean, the death rate. But it, but it has changed the entire world. It has, it has just social and, you know, economically just destroyed the world. Uh, and, and that doesn't really factor in perhaps those side effects, both, you know, long-term or whatever. So this us versus them mentality, I am a silent observer to different people and it is so incredible. Um, now, I love what you say about a lot of the vaccinated people still think that choice should be. I love that. That's great. I mean, that could put it at 75% of the population think that choice, you know, that your body, your choice. But this us versus them, um, the unvaccinated are, are, are uneducated, they're, they're uh, selfish, they're evil, they're causing all of the problems for the vaccinated, they're causing... This, all these variants are the unvaccinated. And so what do you have to say about uh, that? Well, I mean, there, there was that, some key virologists that came out and spoke about it early on that, you know, this, this injection, this vaccine was going to drive, you know, new, new variants. It was gonna push, push the virus to, to make new variants and, and make them faster than would normally happen. Normally, you know, viruses, they get more gentle over time because if they killed their host, they wouldn't exist. So, but he talked about this technology being the wrong technology for this war against this virus. So you do not give a, an injection or a vaccine that does what this injection did, which was not protect people and not prevent spread. You can't use that technology in a pandemic or what you do is you kind of you, you push, you pressurize the virus and you force it to create new variants and you force it to do so really quickly. And he spoke about it early on. He begged, you know, he's from Belgium and he begged many countries to please let's have a discussion about this technology being the wrong technology for right now. And, you know, he and he's someone who had developed many vaccines. You know, he worked for several companies developing vaccines. He worked on the Ebola vaccine project. Um, I mean, he was a top virologist, top vaccine you know, creator. And so he very much believes in vaccines. And he said, this is not the vaccine to be using right now. It's going to cause like, you know, basically, you know, death and destruction. But he begged countries and people in power to just have a discussion around it and his information. 
you know, and basically he was ignored. And now, and he, he, you know, he said when it was going to probably happen, he did predict like, you know, the um, timeline and we're in it. Yeah. Yeah. The discussion is not happening and the ignored that is just major. So uh, is, is your advice to uh, not get the booster if you have been vaccinated? I'm concerned greatly about the ramifications of anyone getting the third shot. Uh, okay. And we'll I, I, do, I do know a lot of people who got the first one and decided not to get another after that. I know people who have two that said they'd never get a third. Um, but people are being forced or, or being forced to decide whether they want a job or whether they want to go to school, um, you know, and with the, the effectiveness rate that we're looking at right now um, and the VAERS reporting data and the whistleblower out of the CDC who's, you know, has evidence of at least 45,000 deaths from the vaccine within three days. Um, I think that we should, I think we need more information. You know, I think people shouldn't be put in that position. You know, a lot of people regret having gotten it. They did, they did it for convenience. They did it to travel. They did it for a job. Um, and it's not, I'm not saying that that's wrong that anybody's chosen that. Everyone has a choice. You know, an older individual who's really frightened and decided they wanted to get the vaccine because it made them feel better. They have a right to do that, you know? Um, and you, you shouldn't be, you can just share the information. You can share the information with your fellow humans and let them make it an educated decision. And if they have all the information and they choose who they, who they want to believe and they feel good about their decisions, then they also live with you know, the ramifications of that decision. But if they feel safer, their family feels safer, you know, it's like, I'm not here to judge anybody. I'm, I'm opinionated about the things I'm opinionated about. And I just, I wanna keep getting the information. You know? And if I get new information, I might change my opinion. But this is, you know, these are the opinions I have now because of the information that I have. Well, beautiful. And most people trust the government. You know, unfortunately, most people believe, you know, what they're told or what they're told to put in their body. The fact that they did not give a choice to these university students that were entering is single-handedly the craziest thing that I could possibly imagine that you, you have to do this in order to go to university. Um, it, it's like the craziest thing that I could have, I never thought that something like that would happen of a biological experiment, the largest clinical study in the world history. I just, how crazy I mean, can you is imagine it? like working so hard through school your whole life, getting into the university of your dreams and being faced with that, you know, as at a young age, being a young adult, you know, and it's almost like you would, you'd rather die than not then not go to your dream, your university of your dream, everything you've worked towards, you know, it's like, that's human psychology, you know, and it's, you're putting it in that perspective. And that's not even, you know, not even talking about the increase in suicide and in, in our youth in the last, you know, year, year and a half. I mean, it's, it's atrocious what's happening because, you know, people are, humans are social creatures and they need, they need one another and they're separating people and they're not allowing children to play and see, you know, the, the reactions, the facial movements, and these babies are, you know, there's the studies about the IQ in the babies that have, yeah. that have grown up, you know, in this so, period of time. So I have another question somewhat related to this, particularly with the 
age group we're discussing here. There has been a lot of discussion and or concern that the vaccination will have long-term effects for reproduction. Do you have any ideas, any information? Yes, I mean, the, the studies, you know, first of all, it was told to the public that the vaccine remained in the, in the muscle tissue in the arm. It did not go throughout the body. And many studies came out and proved that that was wrong. And they knew it. They knew it because in the animal studies prior, you know, they've been trying to make coronavirus vaccines for decades and they've failed. Um, and they find the vaccine especially has a spe especially propensity to go to the reproductive organs and going to the reproductive organs and creating antibodies and rendering people, you know, sterile. And it's just as, just as bad with the males as with the females. And a lot of women, like thousands of women who were pregnant in their first trimester lost their, their pregnancy after getting the vaccine. And there were no pregnant women in the studies. So, you know, when they said that it was safe for pregnant women to get the injection, you know, that just wasn't true. You know, and I just, I don't understand how they can give information like that. To, I mean, these are pregnant women are most protected, you know, how can they tell them that getting an injection of an experimental chemical, you know, combination, that alone, we don't necessarily know everything that's in it because they won't give us the package insert because it's experimental. Um, and then having those women lose their babies. I mean, I don't see how society can stand for something like that. I do need to just, just put on a... Country. I just have to put, I have to just be muted for just a moment here, but I'll, I'll be, I'll be available in just a minute again. Okay. Okay. Uh, go ahead, Rick. Uh, I was going to say that the, the problem, particularly with the reproduction uh, is not limited to the United States. It has reared its ugly head in every country that has the vaccinations, uh, the loss of life because pregnancy is life. Any way you want to look at it. Um, is unacceptable, and and uh, I don't know how any government can withstand itself to force this on, or or even allow it, let alone force it onto people. So we're just not shocked, Rick. I mean, this is just you know, it's shocking to most people. I talked to my dad about this, and he thinks I'm crazy. You know, of course the you know, they approved the vaccine. It's, it's Pfizer. It's this, you're telling me that the CDC has forces that are pulling it that, you know, and it's like, we see this stuff all over the place. The archeology, span we're going to do 200 yep. episodes on this. That this is pervasive in the academic world, in psychology, we're all different industries and businesses. People at the top are somehow influenced. They influence strings are pulled of, people below them yep so this new york and san francisco vaccine passport which also <laughs> was passed in the la city um by 12 council which i don't believe they're enforcing in la city which is where the valley is and there's way too many people you can't enforce this type of a thing it's so they're going to force the owner of the restaurant or of the nail salon to you got to prove to me that you're vaccinated. Otherwise you can't come in. 
That is what is going on right now all over New York, San Francisco, and supposedly LA City, which is not being implemented there. And that's what's so crazy. So my question was, I was like, de Blasio, like, is he, what is he doing in trying to make that type of decision and says he's on firm legal grounding and the restaurant owners instantly sue and they say, you can't force us that we can only serve vaccinated people. But he says, we're on solid grounding. And I have friends in New York, that city is, the rents have plummeted. The, um, the businesses closures are everywhere. It's just like Los Angeles. You drive around Santa Monica, all the way up to the 405 on Pico, Olympics, Santa Mon Wilshire. There's so many vacancies that it's unbelievable. So it's like they want vacancies. And so in Australia, you have this situation where about 25% are vaccinated. You had 24,000 uh, children were brought into an arena to get vaccinated. Three died, 12 passed out. Obviously that's a higher number than on any normal day. In, but they are beating people in the streets in Australia. Uh, two of the main cities there, not the biggest ones, but two like secondary cities have said, you can only leave your house for one hour a day, basically for exercise. They're trying to get everybody vaccinated. Now, those two cities, one is conservative run. The other is uh, run by the CCP. Uh, they basically have built these factories, Chinese factories in there. And then all of a sudden the villages, the towns of people are kind of inside the factories. So, um, you know, obviously protests in France, England, huge, massive numbers. The article that I saw in the Huffington Post said over 100 people were there. I mean, really, that's over 100 people. The estimates say that it's way more. So. Uh, doctor, are you back from your uh, muting session? We're, we're, uh, yeah, I'm here. I'm listening. I'm here. So we're all right. So can you talk a little bit about the S protein that is created in this vaccine and what that is, what that does, how it permeates every cell in your body and how it crosses the blood, blood brain barrier. And just, can you explain the whole scientific process of that? Yeah, so the, the S protein or the spike protein, which, you know, people see lots of pictures of that, um, that is actually the protein that makes people ill with SARS-CoV-2, that being the virus and COVID-19 being the disease and the set of symptoms. So it's a spike protein that makes you sick. And what do the mRNA vaccines do? It, they make your body manufacture spike protein, which is designed to have your body create antibodies to it, yet you're still making the spike protein. And the spike the, protein- The same spike protein that makes you sick. The same spike protein that makes you sick. And now you've also reverse transcribed it into your own DNA. And there's lots of studies proving that. Um, you know, there's, the studies were done, you know, North Carolina, they were done at a lot of universities. I know North Carolina gets talked about a lot more. Um, because of the funding from NIAD and from Fauci and Peter Dazak and all those, the groups that were given money and also, you know, the Wuhan lab. So there's, there's all the money that taxpayers, American taxpayers paid for this research to be done 
to the gain of function research, which what that did was it changed, it altered the spike protein. So there's a few places, very specific places on the spike protein that have to do with how infective the spike protein or the virus is, um, how virulent it is, how dangerous it is, like how sick do you get from it? And they, they altered very specific positions in the spike protein and they'd done it before in other viruses and they had research, you know, they did very specific changes. Um, they added an HIV protein to a very specific place. Um, I believe it's HG120 and they were able to make it much more infective. And, and there's, you know, there are, there, Judy Mikovits talked about this as well, back from the HIV crisis and that there are theories that believe that, you know, it was purposely made to be more effective. And it, there were a lot more people in the hospitals than that, you know, the media told the public dying from HIV. Um, and it was also, there, there was HIV in other vaccines and in vaccines that they were giving to people in other countries to study it. So there's a, there's a lot of, you know, big conspiracies around that, but in changing this spike protein, they've changed it in at least two or three key places that not only make it more infective and made it be able to infect humans, because before it couldn't, but it also made it to where it was more easily to get into the cell, more easy to, to cross the blood-brain barrier. And that is because there's, there's a fold in where they, where they changed it, where they modified the spike protein, it creates a certain fold. And that fold makes it look like a prion. And if you've heard of prion, it's a, it's just means a folded protein and it folds in such a way that it creates plaques in the brain. And then if you couple that with the nanoparticles that are in the injection or the vaccine, which allows it to better get into your cell, the, the lipid nanoparticle allows it to go into your cell, allows it to cross the blood brain barrier. You're just given kind of like a super highway free pass to get into your brain. And prion disease, people have heard about it, and that's what the lay people call mad cow disease. So it's basically, you know, a, a, turns your brain into a sponge. And, you know, it, it also affects the areas in the brain that it mostly affects are the limbic system. So it, it affects greatly your ability to process information. It affects your emotions, you know, so it, it actually, you know, causes a lot of psychological disease and disorders. What, uh, so what, what advice do you have for the vaccinated that will help them, whether they don't, you know, for prevention of getting the virus or if they have, the, what advice do you have to the vaccinated? Well, I, you know, I've, they are doing, there are a lot of great doctors doing studies to try and help the vaccinated with symptoms that they're having secondary to it. Um, I think a huge issue with the vaccines is clotting. And so, you know, they're saying aspirin and, you know, anticoagulants, if you can, obviously, if you don't have a, if there's not a contraindication to it. Um, I think it's really important to pay attention to your symptoms if you're having symptoms of clotting. Um, I did hear about ivermectin, people who had neurologic disorders, that they could actually use ivermectin daily. And there's a dose of it specifically that can be used. And 
they was, for instance, that there were the nurses that were, you know, they've been talked about a lot. They were the first nurses to come out on Facebook about their, their vaccine injury, secondary to the vaccine. And they basically came out and a lot of them had serious neurologic disorders and they're trying to get help. And lots of people were trying just, you know, literally drug, drug trials, anything that could help them so that they can walk again. Cause these, these poor women were just like seizuring nonstop and having trouble walking. And what they started taking ivermectin daily because ivermectin, it locks the attachment of the SARS at the ACE2 receptor. It blocks the attachment of the virus. And so in doing so, it was helping them, you know, and blocking the S protein in, by blocking that. And it was the S protein that's making them sick, that's causing the neurologic disease. And so she could walk, she, there's a great video. Um, they had it on one of the high wire episodes where she is on the ivermectin and she's walking up and down the stairs, kind of dancing a little bit because she can actually walk um, coordinated movement. And then she takes, mm. stops taking it for one day and she's jittery. She looks like she has, you know, Parkinson's or, or some obviously serious neurologic disorder where she can barely walk, like no stability up and down the stairs. Like she could fall at any moment. I, I hate to interrupt you. I'm going to have to lead this discussion. Thank you, Rick. Dr. McCork. Thank you both, and um, hopefully we can rejoin this at some point. All right. I'll, I'm just going to continue for a few minutes. Bye, Rick. Talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. So just a few last Bye -bye. things. We will, uh, we will <laughs> remove any uh, words that we'd like to remove from this. So the time now is critical that people could be working on cures and enhancements to the vaccinated and make maybe making a new vaccine, whatever. But this time is so critical that doctors and scientists could be spending on trying to fix this. And but for some reason, all they're doing is pumping more and more people to get the vaccine. Is that your understanding? Yeah, I mean, I think that we should be spending, you know, precious time on treatments detoxifying treatments, I mean, and, and money, you know, how, like how much money has been spent on the injection and not on finding treatments to help people, you know, on protocols. I mean, there's millions and millions of dollars. I mean, just the, there's just the vaccine campaign that, you know, our president agreed to spend, you know, millions on that money could have gone to research to find yeah. treatments. That's a great point. And so just the last few things. So I believe, a, uh, was it a Spanish study or not Swedish study, but that they think that graphene might be in this uh, perhaps up to 90%. Not sure if that's been confirmed. Is apple pectin, is that recommended by you or by people to remove some metals inside of the body? Um, apple pectin is a good one. Um, the especially the, that I mentioned previously, the cilantro, the oil of cilantro, okay. really good for removing heavy metals. Um, I know Dr. Tenpenny is talking a lot about what to do about the graphene um, because it is magnetizing people, and there is some you know belief that once the five G is in full swing, that people are going to you know suddenly get very ill very fast. Um, because of that graphene. It is toxic. It's a poison and it's not meant to be used in people at all. I mean, it's, it's according to the FDA, um, it is not allowed to be used in people. It's not allowed to be studied in people. Um, and it is, it is in this vaccine. Multiple independent researchers have found that it is, it's verified. It is in this, it's in the vaccine. 
And then there's also some type of a gel that's around it. Does that make that's any the, sense? Yeah, that's the hydrogel. So that's hydrogel. The, the lipid nanoparticle that I was talking about. And that allows it to easier, more easily get into, it can get into your cell even without needing to bind to the ACE2 receptor because of the, the nanotechnology, the nanoparticle. Well, doctor, it's very sexy to hear you talk about such, you know, big, uh, big scientific words. Uh, obviously, I think I got about maybe 65% of what you were saying. That would be, that would be generous. Um, about the nanoparticle? <laughs> about, yeah, some of the other more complicated words that you said. But I think uh, a lot of people are smarter than me out there that probably got every word that you were talking about. So one other thing is a documentary, part one and part two, called Vaxxed. Do you recommend that people see that? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a you know it's a difficult subject to watch. Um, yet I think it's extremely important that people are aware, and and we owe it to the vaccine injured to hear their story. Okay. Um, and just one last thing. The how many vaccines does a baby usually get? And why is it that vaccines are the one thing that it doesn't matter on weight or age or that they just give you a flat set amount rather than give shorter, smaller people less amounts? Why do they do that? I don't know. You know, I think the reason why they do it is because they've not been made to. Um, you know, the in 1986, the vaccine the ruling that President Reagan put into effect that took away liability from the vaccine manufacturers, it took away their, their need to make vaccines safer or to make them, you know, to study them, to make sure that they were effective. I mean, this, with, with this vaccine, the, the COVID-19, the vaccine, this is the first vaccine that's actually had, you know, a placebo group. I mean, that, that's basic science. You have to have a placebo or you don't have a, you don't have proof that it even works. And they've actually, they removed like the need in 1986 for these, these pharmaceutical companies who are manufacturing the vaccines, they removed the need for them to prove that the vaccines were safe or effective. And so they didn't, you know, it costs more money to make a safer vaccine. You know, I'm not against vaccine technology. We use it in you know, oncology for cancer patients. There's amazing vaccines that are created. The word vaccine is not a bad word. What's in these vaccines that they're forcing children to have since 1986 to go to school? Um, and it's just ramped up. Like it's very different than when I was a child, even how much, you know, how many vaccines are, are given to children. And they're given, it, it just takes one. You know, people say, well, I, I, You'd hear these parents in the in the movie in Vaxxed or Vax Two talking about you know they may have vaccinated one child the full vaccine schedule another child partial, um, and then wishing they hadn't because it just takes one child who's compromised um, and the heavy metals or the combination of what's in there and they and they have a neurologic issue or they can't you know they can't walk they start seizuring there are so many different symptoms that come from the toxicity of these vaccines and. And I believe that when they're held accountable, when they're, when they're not allowed to sell their you know, billions of dollars of vaccines, if they're not safe, then they'll, they'll raise the bar and do better. But if, they don't, if they're not told they have to do better, they're not going to. 
All right. Well, good job. We will have you on again. Keep learning as much as you can. And uh, the world thanks you for your knowledge. Uh, you've been doing incredible work. So good job. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Okay. All right. Take I'll care. talk to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. My stomach hurts. <laughs>